0: So just to begin, sorry my usual way, excuse me. <coughs> <coughs> Namo tasa bhagavato harahato rahato samba Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samba Namo Tassa bhagavato, arahato, samma, Buddha Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, so for those of you who have... Uh, just joined us, I've been using the story of the Buddha as a sort of platform to talk about the Dharma. So we, <clears throat> the first talk was about him before he was born in his previous lives, Then we talked about it all the way up to the point where he was leaving home. And uh, there's one thing I just wanted to revise, as it were, was the part of the great renunciation, when, remember, what's uh, thrown him out of the the good life was getting fed up with pleasure. And there was a a thought occurred to me uh, that um, we often get confused between boredom and dispassion or... um, disenchantment, disinterest, a spiritual state. <clears throat> and uh, it occurs to me that the real difference is this. When we get bored with something, um, and then we, as it were, go on a diet or a fast, uh, not a- after not too long a time, we get the craving come back up again for the same old thing. So that's not the, um, the feeling of um, disinterest that comes when, as it were, a part of us has truly had enough of something, so even though it 's placed before us and time has passed there's no there 's nothing drawing us to that to that old pleasure, and that uh, that would definitely suggest that it 's um, a movement in in the heart moving away from the sensual life <clears throat> so when we Refer back to the disgust he felt after the party when they're all hanging about, looking terrible. Um, if we stress the disgust, I think we're slightly off the point. It was it was the fact that it wasn't. There was no drawing towards it again. There was no there was no pleasure to be had there. No happiness to be had there. And on top of that, remember there were the four signs, the messengers of the gods. Uh, you know, the sick, the the uh, the. Um, a very aged person, the corpse, and the person sitting under a tree in some of the stories. And then he makes the great renunciation, he leaves. And um, I don't know whether I said this last time, but there's that lovely little bit where he peeps in and sees his uh, newly born son with his wife. And uh, he does not go towards them because that would again bring up all his doubts. And uh, that, that gives a sort of human touch to what seems to be like, uh, you know, desertion. <laughs> but um, uh, he was just empowered to go. I mean, there are, there are many times, aren't there, when people are called away from the family life in war, stuff like that. In fact, uh, I would just, when I was um, thinking about this, I remembered uh, there was somewhere in the 80s, the uh, British government decided to position um, American missiles in Greenham Common, and there was a huge sort of uproar about that from a certain section of the population. And it was taken over by women. It became an encampment for women. And I remember this um, for two years, some of them were. And I remember this um, one woman being interviewed, and she'd left. she'd left a family, a young family. Not very young. They were 10, 12, 13. So <clears throat> there are times when, as it were, things are even more important than our families. So for the Buddha, or the Bodhisattva, as he was then... There's that drawing, there's that, you know. And uh, there may be times in our lives when we get that feeling of wanting to go deeper into the practice, you see. So we can have to honour that as best we can. When I was in Sri Lanka, there was um, a young girl who uh, would tell her father that in the evening... uh, whenever he went to bed, she would go up to the Deva realm. And in the Deva realm, there were shrines where the Buddha and other arahats would appear and give teachings. And that she uh, would go up there and write the story of the Buddha. And she was collecting notes for a book on the Buddha. And the father, of course, would humor her, and the mother would humor her, you see, and um, she was she was she wasn't six or seven, she was eight, nine, ten. I think it was ten when, when I when she came to our monastery. And she got fed up with her with her parents sort of not believing her. So one night she said to them, I'm off now, and right there before her, before the very eyes, she rose up and disappeared. And uh, the father and mother then thought, oh, this is very strange. So when she reappeared, they, uh, they went visiting monasteries with her. And uh, they ended up at Kandaboda. And I wasn't there for the interview, but I heard the little cassette that they made of the interview. And uh, she, she said exactly what I said to you. And she, was, she wouldn't bow to monks because she was an arahat. Uh, and when they asked her about what meditation was, she seemed to know what it was. There was no, no, no problem there. And she said she'd come down really to look after her grandfather. That's why she'd taken rebirth. But the reason I mention it is that in this book she was writing, the Buddha uh, turned back six times before he finally made the decision to cross the Rubicon and uh, make the the, the big detachment bit. So um, this is where, you know, when you read the scriptures, you always get this coming in of what we might call... um, the supernatural, that which is above what we would consider to be nature. And these days, of course, we tend to poo-poo all that as a load of <laughs> imagination. But unfortunately, it is, is right there within the scriptures. So that's just to, um, really just to contemplate that the, you know, the, uh, the spiritual life does ask us to renounce things that we truly love can be very difficult. But uh, once, once that seed is within you, once, once you know you've got to go, then you've got to go. So now he's left and he's cut his hair off and his horse has, has died from sheer grief. Uh, poor old Kantaka. And uh, he's put on the rag robes and he goes off and he's to his first two teachers, two yoga teachers. so Alara Kalama and Udhaka Ramaputta. And uh, remember that his big quest is, is there an end to suffering? Is there an end to unsatisfactoriness? Or is there, you know, is there an answer to um, the reason why we're conscious? And why we should be suffering because we're conscious? And uh, both of these train him in what we now call the jhanas. Hmm? So the first, uh, the first person, Aladha Kalama, took him up to the, the third Arupa jhana, and Udhaka Ramaputta took him to the end. So he did the for rupa jhanas and the and the four arupa jhanas, and on both occasions they were so taken by his his um, his adeptness at you know entering and re-entering these jhanas that they both said that uh, he was their equal and would he come and teach them. And on both both occasions he of course uh, says no uh, he's not it doesn't really answer his his problem. So what is it about the jhanas that doesn't answer the problem of suffering? Hmm? So remember that when we practice jhana, and it's becoming more fashionable, when I came into Buddhism, it was no-no, it was you know. <laughs> you didn't do things like that. Uh, the Zen school that I was in called it ghetto Zen, bad, bad Zen. <laughs> and uh, everybody else from Ajahn Samedo right through to the Mahasi sort of put you off it. But these days it's sort of coming in with, I think, the work of Lee Brassington and especially perhaps uh, Upa Auk so uh, what is it that uh, you know about the jhanas which uh, are which make some schools avoid it it's because remember that the jhanas are about creating a state of mind just as we do when we see a good film or have a good meal you're trying to create a beautiful environment within ourselves that's what it's about because that's where the pain is uh, that's where the suffering is it's inside us so we seek pleasure often. We speak, uh, seek distraction often in order just to get away from the pain inside. Even here in our meditation, we might find ourselves walking just because <laughs> we just don't want to sit anymore. It's too painful. So even even little small things can be little distractions for us. So the jhana, of course, are uh, just developing a state of mind. And there are many ways that you can do it. And... Uh, why is, it that, why is it that it can be um, such um, a path which can take you away from the practice? And that's because when a person is truly adept at the jhanas, when he can just turn it on, when they can just turn it on, um, it stays with them all day. It's not that um, they go into that depth absorption, but the mental state stays with them all day. So that the teacher of jhana knows when the student is becoming adept, when even if you were to pull their ears and, and box them around the nose, uh, they're still very happy. They're not touched by it because, <laughs> because their heart's gleaming with happiness and joy. And uh, it's that sort of telltale sign that the mind now, the chitta, or perhaps just the mind, the heart and mind, are being lifted up to that level. Now, uh, People in ordinary daily life might do that on a slightly different level. So, for instance, somebody who is uh, tremendously interested in what they're doing, so their lives are empowered by that interest, or empowered by, the, uh, by being in power, or business people who you know, have this goal and are driving themselves towards it, can usually often just lift themselves to that level of energy and commitment whereby they never drop until, of course, the uh, business fails. And then they drop. (laughs) And that really is the point of the jhana. So when the jhanas go down, then, of course, what comes up is the same old Siddhartha Gautama. And that's what he discovered, that while he was in this state and could maintain it, actually, he hadn't hadn't rooted out some of his um, emotional problems, but deeply, he could see that when you come out of that, then you're back to where you were. So with that disappointment, I mean, it must have been disappointing for him, uh, we can presume that uh, as, as a, as a layperson um, you know, in, the, in the palace, that he had explored all these things, both theoretically with the Brahmins and people like that, and that now he was into the practice, and that this was the practice that everybody was saying, you know, this is, this is where it's at. And the idea, remember, of the jhana wasn't simply to feel happy now. It was that when you're reborn, you get reborn in the jhana realms. And they last for eons upon eons, endless times. So the idea is that, you know, as you go up the jhana scale, then you enter into the lower heavenly realms, then into the arupa realms, and finally into the great big brahma realms, where you can hang about for a heck of a long time, um, but then, of course, it drops, but because of, got, of your, your good karma, you probably only drop to being a human being, where you do the jhanas again, sort of rev them up, and you go back up again. So, so in terms of, if you remember the, the way that people would think in those days of this constant round of birth and rebirth, at least that seemed to be a, a viable answer. It was much happier in the, up there in those realms than it is uh, in this one. So anyway, he's uh, disappointed with that. And the next thing he does, of course, is he goes off to practice these mortifications. Now, uh, I've never been able to uh, really find what was the understanding behind the mortifications. Uh, I've tried to look at it, but, but the, only, the only reason I can think of, um, which is really taken also from the Christian tradition is that the reason why we're unhappy is because of the body. It's the body that lets in um, images. It's the body that has greed. It's the body that has lust. We feel it in the body. So if we can somehow control the body, then this would liberate the mind. So all these things that the Buddha did, you know, uh, he said he starved himself. Well, you know, it was down to a grain of, of oats and something every day and, and he got to the point where he could hold his spine through his stomach and, um, uh, and that sort of very fierce asceticism um, really I think was based on that understanding that if, if you reduce the appetite of the body then uh, somehow the mind is liberated the chitta is liberated now for those of you I'm sure all of you, have done a 10-day fast or longer, month fast. Uh, you'll know that the first three days are absolutely horrible while the, the body's clearing out its rubbish. But then after that, you do enter into this very clear, very easy state. And of course, no feelings of hunger because the body's eating itself. So, uh, when you, uh, in that clarity, it's much easier to, to do certain practices. And, uh, I've always presumed that that's what self-mortification is about. Uh, interestingly enough, um, the whole practice, if you look at the words, is actually about self-mortification, but <laughs> about the, the destruction of self. But here we're using it in that old form of, some form of, um, uh, of controlling the body. But for whatever reasons there were... Um, and remember that some of them came from the other leader who was uh, an elder, a contemporary elder of the Buddha, the um, Jain leader, who was definitely into these sorts of things. Uh, of course, his idea rested on karma. His idea was that as soon as you do an action, you're creating more sankharas. So you've got to, you've got to stop doing. You've got to stop doing. So eventually, the Jain saint styles themselves to death. That's the. That's the Jain way of doing things. And I, uh, there's a presumption that the Buddha followed that a little bit just to to find out what all that was about. Uh, but eventually, as you know, he, uh, he ends up being very uh, disconsolate. And, um, you know, he just says it's, it was just painful, that's all. <laughs> didn't didn't seem to achieve anything at all. So now we can imagine him coming to a point of despair. Hmm? So he's he's taken everything that the society has given him in his search, and uh, it just seems to have come to a dead end. In the um, in the story, of course, he's sitting on the roadside when a woman Sujata comes along with a bowl, uh, of, a bowl of offering for the gods. She's going towards the shrine, and she sees she sees him and. Um, Scriptures are, you know, these um, uh, apocryphal tales will be what they are. And, of course, she sees a god sitting by the road, a deva, and she honors him. But, frankly, he must have looked pretty ragged and pretty awful. (laughs) And as she's walking by, she must have thought, oh, this poor ascetic probably needs my rice pudding. So she offers this rice pudding, and uh, somebody, somebody actually corrected me and said that that was a, a British Raj invention. That is, there was no rice pudding. <laughs> what, what there was, was a rice uh, cake, which they have in Sri Lanka called Kiribat. And it's basically rice boiled in coconut milk, which is then, you know, uh, um, boiled out and it's padded out and it's made a little block. Now, of course, if I had a choice, if I was in the Buddha's position there and had a choice, I'd definitely go for the British variety. And there. <laughs> The, re- the reason for that isn't, isn't just facetious. It's because as he's eating this, uh, or at some point uh, close to that time, he remembers this point in childhood. And what he remembers is being watching his father uh, opening up the plowing season by doing some sort of plowing ceremony. And there's something about that watching, there's something about the way he's looking, which gives him uh, an inspiration. Somehow he remembers uh, being in a, in a state, to use that word, which, which is different in quality to all the jhanas he's done and uh, all the states that might have come up when he was doing this self-mortification. And um, I, I was uh, walking through Birmingham Station in Britain and... Uh, as I was going up the escalator to the shopping mall, there was a great big poster up there with different pictures on it. And there was one picture which, as soon as I saw it, I, 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 I almost shouted with glee. And uh, before they took me away, I was able to take a picture. And uh, this little picture is what I call uh, Satipanya. And I think it's the closest thing I've seen as an image to uh, that state of mind which arises, uh, shall we say, Either just before or just upon the seeing. <laughs> and uh, this little baby, is, you see, all those eyes are completely open, completely absorbed in what. Well, what, what, uh, uh, you can't tell if it, it's she or he, you see. That's the other thing about Sadipanya, isn't it? It's not, it's not been diversified. And of course, the mouth has dropped. Now, That that relaxed that relaxed jaw is a great sign to us that the thinking mind has stopped because the connection between the tongue and the jaw is intimate. Uh, You may you may have seen that when you're thinking there are these little vibrations on the tongue. It's already ready to move, and uh, as children you know we have that just that very simple capacity, especially, you know, until around about the age of six, seven, of just being able to look. And uh, I'm sure you had the, the bad experiences I had of uh, having looked look like that and, and your parents tell you to shut your mouth because you look gormless. <laughs> and after that, you, you never look the same, so <laughs> which is very unfortunate. So, if you ever see uh, a child looking like that, you have to stop very still while the child absorbed it. And if you if you see a child doing that, there's there's a moment of complete silence, you see, and then suddenly the question: What is it? You see, but it it has to be absorbed first. So, these uh, this quality of satipanya. Now, in the jhanas, there's sati. Awareness, in fact, I mean, right awareness. Uh, well, it's it's awareness, should we say? Uh, awareness never leaves us. Huh? It's there when we're asleep. I mean, s- something turns us over. Huh? Something pulls the blanket over us when we're cold. So it's not as though awareness goes or disappears completely. It's always there in some way. Um, and in the in in when we when, when somebody practices jhana, awareness is there. That's that's not the problem, you see, but. It's this other quality that was missing, this panya, this this jnana, this um, intuitive intelligence, that that question mark. And uh, that question mark is talked about in Zen as as the great doubt. Not meaning that you're doubting the practice, but that wanting to know. Hmm? So uh, that's what he remembers. That's what he remembers. So uh, now, so, you know, this brings also to mind the importance of food, see, so keep that in mind. So now, uh, having made a now really sort of enlivened by that, now he's got a new tack, a new something to follow, he, um, he goes to, to find this place near the river Naranjana, where he's going to find a place to sit. And uh, again, one of these lovely little apocryphal stories, he puts his bowl into the river and it goes upwards, and it goes against the flow. And uh, for those of you who, uh, who come to my little morning tip, I, I pointed out that I once got a card which, which had a, f- a dead fish flowing in the river, and the, the, uh, the title was Only Dead Fish Go With the Flow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you, if you uh, think of this magical moment, which is representative of the fact that... Uh, the Dharma will always go against our conditioning, the self conditioning. So it'll always be, it's always an uphill struggle, right? Small lesser, you don't want to fight it. But it, you've got to go up, you've got to go against the conditioning all the time. And uh, <clears throat> I'll try and spend a bit of time on one of these talks uh, just revising some of the um, hindrances. So now he's uh, found himself a seat and he makes this wonderful great determination. And uh, in the, in the uh, scriptures it's let my skin, bones and sinews remain and only and let the flesh and blood in my body dry up but not until I attain the supreme enlightenment will I give up this seat of meditation. Have you tried that? <laughs> You can give a go. It's, it's sort of humiliating, but it's, it's worth doing it. Because <laughs> then, then, then you see that to be able to make that sort of determination is, uh, you know, he's, he's really built up that determination and power. I mean, he's resolution, forbearance, and all that sort of stuff. And in fact, he's, uh, you might say that he's come to a point where either he, he finds the answer to this or he, he may as well not hang about. He may as well die. What's the point? So <clears throat> at this point, of course he gets the attack of Mara. And um, this, this book is the, um, the story of Gautama Buri. It's from the, the Nidana, the Jatakas. And I thought I'd read out this lovely battle so that um, you get this uh, the way that uh, you know these stories build up in that, in that sort of metaphysical, that supernatural way. So we've lost a lot of this in our over-rational culture, but it's a lovely scene, huh? Eh? So Mara has come. He's he's a Devaputra. He's a son of the gods. He's not he's not a devil from the hellish realms. He's he's somebody who entices people. He's somebody It's you know, like the Satan in Islam. Yeah. When uh, when uh, I, uh, was it Ayatollah Khomeini called um, America um, Satan, he wasn't he wasn't thinking of it as an evil as as a Christian devil. He was thinking of it as as that which entices you away from. Uh, the um, away from the way of of Allah. So here's you know, now uh, he's he's come with all his armies, you see. And uh, he's about now he's he's really uh, wide up and he's going to he's going to attack the Buddha and get him off the seat because he shouldn't be there. Mara should be there. The, the world is about the sensual world. It's not about getting enlightened. He's, he's in the wrong seat. <laughs> so then. <clears throat> The Deva Putamara raised a tornado, wishing to drive away Siddhartha with it. Instantaneously, such gales rose from the east and other directions, as would have shattered to bits mountain peaks of the height of half a Yojana, two Yojana, or three Yojana, and could have uprooted shrubs and trees of the forest, and could have reduced to fragments the villages and townships of the neighborhood. But by the virtue and majesty of the great being, they lost their force, and on reaching the Bodhisattva, they were not able to shake even the hem of his robe. Wishing to engulf him in water and slay him, he next caused a heavy downpour of rain. By his great miraculous power, clouds gathered in hundreds of thousands, layer upon layer, and poured forth rain. The earth was hollowed out by the violence of the torrential downpour. A great flood came, submerging the treetops of the forest, but it could not moisten his robe, even to the extent of the little space on which a dewdrop could fall. Next he raised the great shower of rocks. Large mountain peaks came swirling through the air, issuing smoke and flames. But on reaching the Bodhisattva, they turned into wreaths of heavenly garlands. Next he raised the storm of missiles. Swords, daggers, darts, and other weapons, single-edged and double-edged, came hurtling through the sky, smoking and flaming. But on reaching the Bodhisattva, they turned into heavenly flowers next he raised a a shower of burning coals embers of the yew of kimsaka flowers came flying through the sky and were scattered at the feet of the bodhisattva turning into heavenly flowers next he raised a storm of ashes red hot ashes glowing like fire came flying through the air fell at the feet of the bodhisattva and turned into sandalwood powder Next, he raised a sandstorm. Fine particles of sand came smoking and flaming through the sky, fell at the feet of the Bodhisattva, and turned into heavenly flowers. Next, he raised a storm of mud. The mud came smoking and flaming through the air, fell at the feet of the Bodhisattva, and turned into heavenly ointments. He next created a gloom which was as thick as when four conditions are found in combination. And on reaching the Bodhisattva, it disappeared as darkness that vanishes with the oncoming radiance of the sun. It's <laughs> lovely stuff, huh? And um, uh, it's, it's sort of literature, I suppose. You can call it literature. And uh, eventually, of course, he, he won't budge. And so Mara then approaches him, you see, and, um, these are the, the, and he asks him this question. Um, well, let me just read it. So now, remember, all this is being watched by the deities on the ridge of the universe. Hmm? This is a square, square universe. Huh? Continually raised their heads and craning their necks, looked out, saying, Alas, ruined indeed is the handsome physical frame of Prince Siddhartha. What will he do? Then the great being told Mara, as he stood there, claiming the throne, accruing on the day of their enlightenment to Bodhisattvas, who fulfilled their perfections, Mara, who will testify to your having given away in charity? Mara stretched forth his hand in the direction of his army, saying, All these are my witnesses. Instantaneously, the cry of one accord, I am witness, I am his witness, coming from the followers of Mara, resounding like an earthquake. Then said Mara to the great being, Siddhartha, who will testify to your having given in charity? And the great being answered, You have sentient beings as witnesses to your having given away in charity, but in this place I have no living being whatever to be my witness. Let alone the generosity I have practised in all other existences, let this great and solid earth, non-sentient as it is, be my witness to the 700-fold great arms I gave when I was born as Wasintara. And extricating his right arm from underneath the folds of his robe, he stretched it out towards the earth, saying, Are you or are you not witness of my having given the seven hundredfold arms in my birth as Wesantara? And the great earth resounded with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand echoes, as though to overwhelm the forces of Mara, and saying as it were, I was your witness to it then. Then as the great being continued to reflect on the arms he had given to Asvasintara, saying to himself, Oh, Siddhartha, you have given away vast charities and made the highest sacrifice. The elephant Giramkala, which is Mara's elephant, which was a 150 yojanas in height, went down on its knees. And the followers of Mara fled in every direction. No two fled the same path, and they ran in which ever direction that lay before them, discarding their head ornaments and the clothes they were wearing. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, the great, that's the great attack of Mara, put in a, in a metaphorical way. And of course, uh, those are the hindrances coming up. Those are the final uh, shaking of the self, which doesn't want to come off. And uh, at root, it's fear, isn't it? You know, when you get right down to the root emotion of delusion, it's fear, the fear of, of the loss of this, this idea of who I am. And that's what it's really portraying, and trying to get across that. If you just hold your ground, it disappears. They, it turns. It, it changes. It, it just turns into its opposite. And um, what keeps him there, what keeps him unable to, to resist the attack is of course is perfections. Here, of course, it's the charity. But in our meditation, it's that ability to stand and to observe those reactions that we get when fear arises, and to be with it, and to allow it to to just be there and to get accustomed to fear. And if we can if we can begin to lose our fear of fear, well, nothing can frighten us. But it's that ability to stand still, you see. So even though Um, this is a mythological way it's a lovely sort of way of portraying what must be the the sort of final death throes of the self that moment when it just disappears so uh, I'll try and do a bit more of that go a bit more deeply into the um, hindrances uh, another time but I want to just move on to um, what happens then? He, he, of course, is moving towards the enlightenment now, and um, one of the things that <clears throat> I suppose has always been a little, I suppose, disappointing for me, uh, because having been brought up in in something like Catholicism, which uh, my experience was, <laughs> it was a sort of happy religion, it doesn't go for everybody who was a Catholic, <clears throat> but also. Uh, Christians and and, uh, and in the Judaic tradition too, there is this uh, sense of jubilation, this sense of rejoicing, and blowing horns and, and music. And when you remember this lovely music, say of of um, Bach's Alleluia chorus or or Handel's Messiah, you see, and it sort of lifts you. See, <clears throat> well, I always remember Buddha Day. Now, Buddha Day is, you know, the big. It's the big one. It's it's um, celebrating the founder. You know, everything that. Even this place is all... This place here now is totally root dependent on this uh, being that existed 2,500 years ago. And so one wants to blow horns and hoop a bit, you know? So <laughs> on, the, on these uh, lovely Buddha days, especially, you know, I'm thinking more... Well, it's the same everywhere, but I remember at Kandaboda, where I was at most of the time, it's, the, the only difference between Buddha day and everything else was you lined up a bit earlier for food. Because... <laughs> because there was more stuff around, and, uh, and that was it. And then there were these terrible talks, and then you went away, and that was it. <laughs> and uh, I-, I want to read out just one more last piece, which at least shows you that in the literature, there is this mudita, there is this wonderful sense of rejoicing at this great act. And I remember I was uh, visiting... A very famous monk, died now, Ajahn Tate, who used to live on the um, Thai, right up on the Mekong River there, right up at the top of uh, North Thailand. And um, they were building uh, this um, meditation hall. I I slept in it, actually. And on the wall, this artist was drawing a depiction of the Enlightenment and uh, a more glorious picture you couldn't have come across. I mean, it was just full of action, it was it was like an exploding star with these beautiful colours. And um, in a sense sometimes you sometimes we forget that. We forget that actually there's a point where you can actually rejoice and, and, and be happy and be and and sort of have a feast. <laughs> so here, just before um, he becomes enlightened, you see, so now the gods know that Mara has been completely routed and the path is completely open uh, for the Bodhisattva. So the um, the signs go up from one realm to another realm, and the whole of the uh, thousand-world system is now a gleam, you see. So the radiance of the banners and streamers hoisted on the eastern ridge of the world sphere spread as far as the western ridge. Similarly, the radiance of the banners and streamers hoisted on the western ridge, the northern ridge, and the southern ridge spread as far as the eastern, southern, and northern ridges, respectively. respectively. And the radiance of the banners and streamers hoisted on the surface of the earth remained in constant contact with the world of Brahma, and and that those held aloft in the world of Brahma penetrated to the very surface of the earth. Flowering trees in 10,000 world spheres blossomed forth. Fruit-bearing trees were weighed down with clusters of fruit. Flowers that bloom on tree trunks, branches and creepers blossomed in their respective places. Lotuses on stalks sprang in clusters of seven breaking through rocky surfaces and were heaped layer upon layer. The 10,000 world systems revolved and remained like a wreath of garlands tossed about or like a well-arranged spread of flowers. The intervening regions of 8,000 yojana Between the world spheres, which had not been lit before, even by the radiance of seven suns shining together, became one mass of light. The great ocean, 84,000 Yojanas deep, turned into sweet water. Rivers ceased to flow. Those blind from birth were able to see objects. Those deaf from birth were able to hear sounds. And those crippled from birth walked on their feet. Bonds and fetters broke loose. And fell apart. So this rejoicing, he now, of course, uh, makes the big breakthrough. And uh, that, that's the point of his, what we now call uh, his enlightenment. And um, there's just a little thing here I'd like to say before um, I leave. is religious emotions, you know, what part do they play in our spiritual life? Because especially in something like uh, Theravada, you can get pretty dry. <laughs> just, doing, just doing your Vipassana. But that sense of awe yeah, that we get, for instance, in the carol Silent Night. Just to, uh, you know, just to let the story of the Buddha come and just get that sense of awe, the brilliance, the, the, the amazing thing. And then to shift it over to consider the Dharma as an actual living force hmm, that runs through the universe. Praise, adoration—you know—to actually, I mean, it's it's actually one of the um, one of the objects of jhana meditation is uh, contemplating the Buddha. You can get it seems to first or second jhana with that, and uh, the sense of rejoicing that we just um, heard—you know—to bring that up, a sense of rejoicing. Then, of course, there's that gratitude, yeah. Just the feeling of that lovely feeling of gratitude. The more poignant because, you know, this stuff cannot be repaid. You can't, you can't pay the Buddha back for what he did. <laughs> In fact, you can't pay anybody back. You know, it's, it's, I mean, that's, that's an idea of paying somebody back. But just being able to receive the gifts. And that's why we have this flow of, um, you might call, a gift economy. I read that somewhere. Where people give each other gifts. The Dharma and, and uh, sustenance. And uh, devotion in the morning when I ask people to devote themselves you know um, not so much a a hard sort of uh, a hard sort of you know giving yourself it 's more like the heart wants to do it, you have to cajole yourself, you have to sort of uh, massage the heart to feel that way yeah? and uh, one thing that um, uh, uh, that I think especially we in the West have to uh, begin to look at is, is this whole thing of bowing and what bowing actually means. Now, as you know, there are many ways to bow. You know, the, the Tibetans do a full prostration. The uh, Therabhatans do the, uh, this bowing like I do in the, uh, when I come in here. And then there's the Zen, which just bow from uh, the, the waist. And, uh, and then there's just that uh, some people sort of come in and just bow their head and, um, and then again, there's just that blink. <laughs> so it's just a, <laughs> a suggestion of bowing. So uh, bowing, bowing uh, at first, it always seems a bit strange. And I remember when I first um, had to do it in Zen. I did it because everybody else did it. But I didn't really get into it for a long time. And if you think of bowing as a body language, as a way of expressing these types of emotions then um, it's a way of reinforcing the action of the heart. It's a way of, of actually giving it a vehicle in which to express these sorts of um, religious emotions. And these religious emotions are all bound up and around the faith and the trust and the act of, of uh, giving oneself to the practice. There's this sort of uh, the underbelly of it. Now, of course, to think that they themselves alone get us... Uh, to be liberated would be a silliness but they're there as a sort of support and some people uh, feel a need for that more than others you know the more the more intellectual you are the the less the less you feel you need it but probably the more you do need it and uh, uh, to find a way of expressing that devotion in some sort of body language I think you'll find um, very helpful The, uh, when I, when I was in, the first time I went to Burma to work with um, Ujjanaka, was the only time. After doing the old hard Mahazi thing in a hall, I got the opportunity to visit Rangoon. And um, it was difficult to get let out, you know, you had to have a good reason. So I gave him the reason that I wanted to buy religious books. At that time, to get religious books out of the country, you had to go from one government department to the next to get these bits of paper. The religious department, the censoring department, the export department, and of course, I would take a whole day going to see these departments, <laughs> and therefore spent the last week wandering around Rangoon. And walking into the uh, uh, beautiful big pagoda, it's supposed to be one of the seven wonders of the world, the um, Swedagon Pagoda. I walked in and I saw these people pouring water over Buddha rupas and bowing and mumbling. And I remember distinctly the sentence that came into my head. It said, well, I'm not a Buddhist. <laughs> and that's that immediate rejection of any form of, um, of ritual uh, was, was almost obedient. It was, it was cool and cold and like that. As, the, as, the, as this whole idea of religious emotions came to me and slowly began to develop, the last time I was in Burma, which was in the year 2000, and I was at uh, Upandita's place, uh, I had again the opportunity to go straight to the Pagoda. And uh, it's quite remarkable to find myself uh, not quite pouring water over Buddhas, but <laughs> hanging around this lovely limpid atmosphere. And uh, there's a beautiful temple in Sri Lanka called Kelaniya, which is just outside Colombo if you ever go. And if you go there on a full moon day, um, you can just, you can actually, it's like slicing through butter the feeling of devotion in the air. And it's, it's enormously beautiful with people just wandering around the Bodhi tree and making their blessings and making their offerings. And... Uh, you might say that what it does is it gives a glow to the practice. It gives a certain glow to it underneath. And it's something that you may consider. I mean, most people try to do a bit of meta to soften the practice, but even these things are very softening and sort of give the practice just that little bit of juice sometimes, you know, especially when it gets miserable like the weather we've been having. So uh, these these things that I've read out are really just examples of how the heart moves. Sometimes Buddhism, generally speaking, will always veer towards that more wisdom-based because it's it's centered on knowing. It's centered on you know this this idea of of perception of discernment. You see. Um, so these little practices that that uh, that we can do um, just put the heart in the right sort of position for it, so it moves with that desire to investigate. So um, I thought that I would then just read out for you the three sermons which um, he gave. Just read them out, because they're pretty straightforward. Uh, so remember that when he um, when he was enlightened, he left uh, searching for his um, people. And uh, I'll come back to that uh, as another lecture. But uh, on this one here, I'd just like to read the discourse on the turning of the wheel of the law. And I've been a little bit... Um, uh, I've, I've done my own little bit with it so that it reads more smoothly because sometimes it, it's, it feels stilted. So this is what I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Benares in the deer park at Isipatana. And the Blessed One addressed the group of five ascetics, Venerable Friends, yes, Venerable Friend, these, those ascetics replied. Venerable Friends, these two extremes should not be practiced by anyone who has entered the spiritual path. Firstly, the pursuit of pleasure in sensual, the pursuit of happiness in sensual pleasure. This is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble and unbeneficial. And secondly, the practice of self-mortification, which is ignoble, unbeneficial, and painful. Avoiding these two extremes, the Dagata has discovered the middle way. This gives rise to insight to knowledge, leads to peace, experiential understanding, to enlightenment and nibbāna. And what is this middle way, awakened to by the Tathagata? It is this noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right attitude, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right awareness, and right concentration. Now this, venerable friends, is the first noble truth of unsatisfactoriness. Birth is suffering. Ageing is suffering. Sickness is suffering. And being with what we dislike is suffering. And not being with what we like is suffering. In fact, not to get what we want is suffering. In short, the five aggregates of grasping, form, feeling, perceptions, emotion, thoughts, and consciousness are all unsatisfying. The second noble truth of the cause of unsatisfactoriness is the craving that, fi- that leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and indulgence, seeking happiness here and there. That is, the craving for sensual pleasure, the craving to become, and the craving to annihilate. And the third noble truth of the cessation of suffering is the fading away without remainder, the cessation of that craving, the giving up and relinquishing of that craving, and the freedom from it, non-attachment. The fourth noble truth is the path that leads out of this unsatisfactoriness. Now, venerable friends, in regard to these understandings that have never been known before, There arose in me the vision, the knowledge, the wisdom, the penetration and the light. Namely, that this noble truth, that this is the noble truth of unsatisfactoriness. This noble truth is to be fully understood. And this noble truth has been fully understood. This is the noble truth of the cause of unsatisfactoriness. This noble truth is to be abandoned. This noble truth has been abandoned. This is the noble truth of the end of unsatisfactoriness and this noble truth is to be realized and this noble truth has been realized. This is the noble truth of the path leading to the end of unsatisfactoriness. This noble truth is to be developed. This noble truth has been developed. So long, venerable sirs. As my knowledge and vision of these four noble truths as they really are in their three phases and twelve aspects was not thoroughly purified in this way, I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world with its devas, maras and brahma, in this population with its ascetics and brahmins, its devas and humans. But now that these noble truths have been fully realized by me, it is so proclaimed. This is the knowledge and vision arose in me. Unshakable is the liberation of my citta. This is my last birth. There is no more renewed becoming. This is what the Blessed One said, and those venerable friends delighted in what he had spoken, and while the discourse was being delivered, there arose in the venerable khandanya the dust-free, stainless vision of the Dharma. Whatever is subject to arising is all subject to passing away. And the Blessed One proclaimed, Kondanya knows, Kondanya knows. And that is how Kondanya earned his name, Anyata Kondanya, the Kondanya who knows. So that's when he went up and he met with them. And remember that they first rejected him because um, they had this feeling that he'd been soft and gone off and eaten rice pudding. And that was the limit. So when he went back, they didn't—they uh, didn't particularly like him coming. They thought, "Well, he's coming to tempt us." But in fact, uh, it seems as though they were so taken by the way he looked that they were prepared to sit down and discuss these things with him. These things, of course, these scriptures were written after the event, you know. So then they all went off to get their arms round, and on the way back, um, having eaten their arms round, they all sat down and he gave them another talk. And this one is the characteristic of not self. This is what I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Benares in the deer park at Isipatana. And there, the Blessed One addressed the group of five ascetics, Venerable Friends. Yes, Venerable Friend, the ascetics replied. Form is not self. If form were self, then it would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine form. Let my form be like this. Let my form not be like this. It would be the same with feelings, perceptions, emotions and thoughts and even consciousness itself. If consciousness were self, we would be able to say let my consciousness be like this, let it not be like this. Now I ask you, is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable friend. And whatever is impermanent, is that satisfying or unsatisfying? It does not satisfy, venerable sir. And is that which is impermanent does not satisfy and is subject to change to be regarded as, this is me, this is mine, this is myself, not at all, venerable friend. Can we not say the same of feelings, perceptions, emotions and thoughts and even consciousness itself? Indeed, venerable friend, replied the five ascetics. So it follows that any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future or present, Internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all form is to be correctly regarded as, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. And the same goes for feelings, perceptions, emotions, thoughts, and even consciousness itself. Now, venerable friends, when someone who has heard this understands in this way, they become disenchanted with form disenchanted with feelings and perceptions, disenchanted with emotions and thoughts, disenchanted even with consciousness itself. And once disenchanted, they become dispassionate. And through this detachment, the chitta is liberated. And when liberated, it realizes this is liberation. And they come to know birth is no more, the spiritual life has been fulfilled, what had to be done has been done, there is no more returning to any state of becoming. This is what the blessed one said and those venerable friends delighted in what he had spoken and while this discourse was being delivered the chitter of those group of five ascetics were liberated from the floods of non-clinging. So now we've got five arahats in the world and uh, I'd like to read this one too. It's also a little short one or I've made it short (laughs) taking out all the repetitions. This is the one that um, uh, T.S. eliot light and it's in his poem somewhere and it's, uh, it's the one that where he's describing burning and here he's with a thousand, he's, he's talking to a thousand monks this is what I heard on one, this is not so, you know, I mean uh, in the story this happens very shortly after his enlightenment this is what I heard, on one occasion the blessed one was dwelling at Gaia at Gaia's head, together with a thousand monks And there the Blessed One gave this discourse to them. All is burning. And what is this all that is burning? It is the eye that is burning, forms are burning, eye consciousness is burning, eye contact is burning. And whatever feeling is conditioned by that eye contact, whether it be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that too is burning. Burning with what? burning with the fires of craving, the fires of aversion, the fires of delusion, burning with birth, aging, sickness and death, burning with sorrow, pain, desolation and despair. And so it is with all the senses, with hearing, tasting, smelling and touching. And the mind itself is also burning, burning with the fires of craving, the fires of aversion, the fires of delusion, burning with birth, aging, sickness and death, burning with sorrow, pain, desolation and despair. Now when a meditator, properly instructed, grasps this by direct experience, they become disenchanted with the eye, disenchanted with forms, disenchanted with eye consciousness, disenchanted with eye contact and disenchanted with whatever feeling is conditioned by that eye contact, whether it be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And so it is with all the senses and the very mind itself. Once disenchanted with the sensual world as a source of happiness, the meditator loses interest. And through this dispassion, they become liberated. And with that liberation, there comes this knowledge. There will be no more birth. The spiritual life has been fulfilled. What had to be done has been done. There will be no more returning into states of becoming. That is what the Blessed One said. Elated those monks, delighted in the Blessed One's teachings. And while this discourse was being delivered, the hearts of those thousand monks were liberated from the taints through the way of non clinging. So, just to. Sometimes uh, I think we don't read the scriptures enough, you know? So, I just want to bring this uh, to an end by. um, just going back to his victory verse and then I shall do I shall chant it in Pali and we'll sit for a while uh, a bit of silence and then we'll um, do the metta so now <clears throat> he's um, he's fully enlightened he's, he, he's broken through he's awakened and this is the victory verse that he told Ananda that sprung spontaneously to him upon that awakening Seeking but not finding the house builder, I have traveled from birth to birth countless times. Painful indeed is birth over and over again. But now, O oh house builder, you have been seen. You shall not build another house again. Your rafters have been broken, your ridgepole demolished. My citta has attained the unconditioned and gone beyond any kind of craving. Ane jati sansarang, sandawe sang anibi sang, gahakaraka gawe santo, dukā jati puna punang, gahakaraka dittozi, puna gehang nakahazi, sabate pasu ka bhaga, gahakutang visankatang, visankaragatang cheetang, tananang kaya majjaga. Ah, no, it's still late. Yeah, let, now let's now let us chant the verses of sharing aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue My mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, Guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind Until I realize Nipana, in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind. With mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.